Heavenly Father, I pray this morning that your word would testify to those wonderful truths of which we know it testifies from the first to the last page, your amazing grace. And may it be sweet to us. May it grow all the sweeter to those who delight in that grace of Jesus Christ. And may it be shown fresh and new and wonderfully true to those who have not seen just how amazing and wonderful it is. And this is work that only your spirit can do. And we trust you and you alone to accomplish it for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Please have a seat. If I were to ask you to award to one person the dubious title of most wicked person in all of scripture, to whom would you give that award? If we were to exclude the devil and the demons and we were to focus only on humans, who would you call the most depraved, sinful, wicked person in the Bible? Maybe Judas or Pharaoh, Ahab, we met him in Chronicles and got a taste of his wickedness, maybe his wife Jezebel. What about those Canaanites who were so incredibly wicked that God brought them out of the land of Canaan and gave it to his people? Today, we will meet a man who at least deserves to be in the running, for the title, Most Wicked Person in Scripture, Manasseh, the son of Hezekiah. We are about to read, which is going to start to look like just a laundry list of depravity. And think to yourself, whether or not you can think of anyone who tops Manasseh just for sheer evil behavior. In this account of the most vile sinner, we are going to see a very stark picture of how God responds to sinfulness and how God treats sinners. Let's go to 2 Chronicles chapter 33. 2 Chronicles 33. We'll begin by reading verses 1 to 11. 2 Chronicles 33, 1 to 11. Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had driven out before the people of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places that his father Hezekiah had broken down. And he erected altars to the Baals and made the Asheroth and worshipped all the host of heaven and served them. And he built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem shall my name be forever. And he built altars for all the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he burned his sons as an offering in the valley of the son of Hinnom, and used fortune-telling and omens and sorcery, and dealt with mediums and with necromancers. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger." And the carved image of the idol that he had made, he set in the house of God, of which God said to David and to Solomon his son, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. 
and I will no more remove the foot of Israel from the land that I appointed for your fathers, if only they will be careful to do all that I have commanded them, all the laws, the statutes, and the rules given through Moses. Manasseh led Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem astray to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. The Lord spoke to Manasseh and to his people, but they paid no attention. Therefore, the Lord brought upon them the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria, who captured Manasseh with hooks and bound him with chains of bronze and brought him to Babylon. Thus far the word of the Lord. You can see quite easily that the first goal of our author in this passage is just to give us this shocking picture of the escalating wickedness of Manasseh. First, we see that he takes away any lasting legacy of the goodness of Hezekiah, and you'll see how that connects with our final point in our sermon last week where Hezekiah failed to pray for the people after him and his son immediately comes in and erases any legacy of goodness that his father left in the kingdom. Manasseh seems like a man who's ready to try anything. Whatever the nations are doing around him, Manasseh is willing to to, to try it out. He's game for that. The balls, the Asherah, the host of heaven, whatever you're worshiping, he's willing to try and worship it as long as it's not God. Then we get this sort of rapid fire list of terrible, wicked actions, sorcery, fortune tellers, consulting omens, child sacrifices. You will remember that Israel's first king, Saul, was shown to have descended to the utter depths of wickedness when he went secretly in the night to consult a witch who said she could raise Samuel from the dead. We, we encountered Ahaz a few weeks ago, and we were meant to be shocked that he might sacrifice his children. Now for Manasseh, these sort of actions are just a normal Tuesday. This has become commonplace in Israel. And the height of Manasseh's sin, the crescendo of his wickedness, is to desecrate the temple itself, to put his idols and his altars to his idols there, to demand that they live alongside God in his house, or even that God be evicted and replaced by idols in the house where he said he would show his presence and his love of his people making use of those furnishings, those altars, which God designed himself in Exodus as a picture of his love for his people, his willingness to atone for their sins and to make use of them for an inanimate idol. Shows us just this perfect picture of how wicked Manasseh has become and the wickedness he leads Israel in. And of course, these sins are magnified when we think that Manasseh is doing all this while he holds the title son of David, the one who is meant to lead the people to call upon the name of God in the temple, who is now trying to replace God in the temple. Manasseh didn't just abandon his office, he subverted his office. He became the anti-son of David, the anti-Messiah. Manasseh's increasing evil is only finally put a stop to 
When Assyria invades and a hook is put in Manasseh's nose like an animal and he is bound in chains of bronze and he is dragged off to Babylon. And notice that it is not Babylon, but Assyria that is reigning at this time. So Manasseh is not being taken to Nineveh, the capital of Assyria. He's being dragged off and redistributed with other captives to other rebel cities. He is not even being given the honor of a captive king. This man is enslaved, he is insulted, he is rejected by God. So the chronicler tells us that all of this was the work of the Lord, that God was the one who brought the armies of Assyria to defeat Manasseh. So, taking into account the man and how God responded to his sin, I put the question to you, and I put it honestly. Was that fair? Was God unfeeling to Manasseh to take him off of his throne and send him into exile for just a little bit of sorcery and idolatry and child sacrifice and defiling God's house? Throughout this passage, we've, we can also see that the chronicler is showing us every warning upon warning that God is giving to Manasseh, that is available to Manasseh so that he might see his sin, so that he might turn from it before it comes to these horrible consequences. That list of Manasseh's various sins, sorcery, fortune-telling, omens that we read, killing his children, is actually quoted directly from Deuteronomy from Moses' warning to the people regarding these practices. We see that in Deuteronomy 18, where Moses says, when you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering, anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer or one who inquires of the dead. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God for these nations which you are about to dispossess. Listen to fortune tellers and to diviners. But as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do this. As Israel is being led into Canaan, Moses warns them, do not forget why it is just for you to have this land. It is not only that God has promised that the land of Canaan would belong to Israel, but it is also that the Canaanites themselves have become so wicked that it is just and good for Israel to be an instrument of God's wrath to dispossess and destroy those Canaanites. So Israel must be warned, do not fall into the same practices, the same sins of those people. Why should you be spared from the judgment that you are an instrument of bringing upon them? This is why the author in our, in our passage in Chronicles twice points out that Manasseh is committing the sins of the Canaanites that Israel had conquered. 
even noting that Judah is doing worse than those nations. They're not just imitating the Canaanites. They have surpassed them in wickedness. So whether or not Manasseh himself has read these warnings or left them on a shelf, they loom large over his sin as he imagines that he is acting without impunity. We also see warnings in our author's references to the temple. Note that each time he talks about Manasseh's sin in the temple, he reminds us of the purpose that God had for that house. Verse 4, Manasseh built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, in Jerusalem shall my name be forever. Verses 7 and 8, and the carved image of the idol that he had made, he set in the house of God, of which God said to David and to Solomon his son, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. And I will no more remove the foot of Israel from the land that I appointed for your fathers, if only they will be careful to do all that I commanded them, all the law, the statutes, and the rules given through Moses. So you see there the law referenced again as that which God's people will uphold if they have a right relationship with God when they come to this house. The chronicler continues to remind us of what God declared his temple would be and what it means that Manasseh is desecrating it, trying to evict God or at least compromise God's presence in his own house to put in a new tenant that he has made in the place where God said he would dwell among his people, the place where God says his presence would be known to Israel. If Israel was in distress, they could call upon him at this place. This is where Manasseh is trying to remove God. Imagine a child running away from their parents in the middle of a dangerous city street and saying, I choose the protection of this park bench instead. I commit myself to the care of this inanimate object in the midst of a dangerous world rather than my father or mother. The chronicler is reminding us of what Manasseh should have thought through what he should have known and heeded. And we know from our passage that the Lord did clearly send warnings, that this was made plain, warnings to which Manasseh and the people paid no attention. The parallel account of Manasseh in the book of Kings gives a summary of these warnings. 2 Kings 21, 10 to 15. And the Lord said by his servants, the prophets, Because Manasseh, king of Judah, has committed these abominations and has done things more evil than all that the Amorites did who were before him and has made Judah also to sin with his idols. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, behold, I am bringing upon Jerusalem and Judah such disaster that the ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. And I will stretch over Jerusalem the measuring line of Samaria and the plumb line of the house of Ahab, and I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. And I will forsake the remnant of my heritage and give them into the hand of their enemies, and they shall become a prey and a spoil to all their enemies, because they have done what is evil in my sight and have provoked me to anger since the day their fathers came out of Egypt, even to this day." 
These are the warnings Manasseh heard. These are the warnings Manasseh ignored. This is the sin for which Israel was sent into exile. This is the sin for which the Canaanites are removed from the land. And one day, God will deem the day of patience done and his wrath will come. And so, the day comes when a hook is put in Manasseh's nose and he is bound in shackles and carried in disgrace to Babylon. Can you say that that was not deserved? Good riddance, Manasseh. Go rot in Babylon and desecrate God's house no more. The readers of Chronicles might have felt that kind of superiority as they read about Manasseh. They might have if they themselves had not just returned from the exact exile that Manasseh was warned of. Manasseh being taken by Assyria to Babylon was a prophetic warning of the exile in Babylon into which all of Judah would go. How could they look down on Manasseh when they themselves had felt the sting of that same punishment, proof that they themselves had committed the same sins? And we can look at Manasseh the same way. Yes, by all means, be disgusted as you read about the sins of Manasseh. But consider how Paul speaks to his readers in the book of Romans. In chapter 1, he lists all the worst sins of the Gentiles. All their most terrible, disgusting actions, sins against nature, sins against their body, how those actions are punishment for how they've ignored and disregarded God. Paul lets his readers grow in their sense of justice against those wicked Gentiles. And then he says in Romans 2, therefore you have no excuse. Oh man, every one of you who judges for in passing judgment on another, even on those wicked Gentiles, you condemn yourself. Because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and then do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Paul goes on to show that whether or not they committed those same actions, the hearts of the most pious readers of Romans are no different than those that they would despise and look down on. They will face the same judgment as those who are delighting in their sin. And so as we read about Manasseh, we see that we are not so different from Manasseh in our hearts. We can certainly thank God if we have not committed some of those horrible things that Manasseh did. But all the same, could you stand before God and say that your heart was upright while Manasseh's was crooked? That you were righteous when Manasseh had sinned? Manasseh consulted fortune tellers and the spirits of the dead. Have we ever made decisions relying on the wisdom of the world around us rather than the wisdom of God's word? Have we been led by what they love? If it's money, security, social advancement, 
those things that guide our culture, just like Manasseh was guided by those things that the cultures around him loved. Manasseh killed his own children. Proverbs warns us that whenever we forsake the discipline and instruction of the Lord, we have set our heart on putting our children to death. Have we ever taught or shown our children to prioritize the pleasures and delights of this world which lead to destruction more than those things of the Lord which lead to life? Manasseh put idols in the temple. And yet we are told that our own bodies, our hearts are a temple of the Lord made to be a holy habitation of the Spirit. Have we ever tried to evict God with idols in our hearts? Or at least make him dwell alongside those things that he despises? Corinthians warns us that if we call ourselves the body of Christ and then willingly engage in sin, we are trying to unite God to sin, just like Manasseh was raising idols in the temple. So much of Jesus' ministry was spent showing that the most righteous Pharisee was not free in his heart from the same accusations with which he was accusing the worst of sinners. Even that rich young ruler, remember the one who could boast that he had kept every commandment after 30 seconds with Jesus went away sad because he realized he loved money too much to keep the first commandment, the commandment that Manasseh himself had broken. And just like Manasseh, have we heard God's word and ignored it? Do we have access to his prophets, his exhortations, his warnings? Whether or not you leave God's word sitting on the shelf or listen to what it says, turn away and forget it. Can you not say that it was not given for you, for your warning and exaltation? Paul says even, uh, exhortation, Paul says even the testimony of nature the testimony of our own consciences leaves us without excuse. And so, we can look at perhaps the worst man in Scripture, the worst, maybe the worst man in history, and we can ask how different our hearts are from his. Even Paul, as our brother Cal read for us today, could look into his own heart and he could say he was the foremost of sinners. Paul was not being glib. He wasn't being condescending or falsely humble. Oh, I know, I'm such a terrible sinner also. He really saw his nature. And he knew that he had more in common with Manasseh than with God. If it is fair and just for Manasseh to be cast away by God into exile then each of us must expect an eternal exile from God, from his good promises and his joy, away from his manifest presence in hell. This is the just judgment of God for all those who rebel against him. If anyone has ever asked how a good God can send good people to hell, the Bible's first answer is this, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside and together they've become worthless. No one does good, 
not even one. We are all like Manasseh at heart. That is our first point this morning. In Manasseh, we see the terrible extent and the just consequences of sin, which makes the next part of our chapter not just good news for Manasseh, but for us. Let's read back chapter 33, verses 10 through 20. Second Chronicles 33, 10 to 20. The Lord spoke to Manasseh and to his people, but they paid no attention. Therefore, the Lord brought upon them the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria, who captured Manasseh with hooks and bound him with chains of bronze and brought him to Babylon. And when he was in distress, he entreated the favor of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. He prayed to him, and God was moved by his entreaty. God was moved by his entreaty and heard his plea and brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. Afterward, he built an outer wall for the city of David west of Gihon in the valley and for the entrance into the fish gate and carried it around Ophel and raised it to a very great height. He also put commanders of the army in all the fortified cities in Judah, and he took away the foreign gods and the idol from the house of the Lord and all the altars that he had built on the mountain of the house of the Lord and in Jerusalem, and he threw them outside of the city. He also restored the altar of the Lord and offered on it sacrifices of peace, offerings, and thanksgiving, and he commanded Judah to serve the Lord, the God of Israel. Nevertheless, the people still sacrificed at the high places, but only to the Lord their God. Now the rest of the acts of Manasseh and his prayer to his God and the words of the seers who spoke to him in the name of the Lord, the God of Israel, behold, they are in the chronicles of the kings of Israel and his prayer and how God was moved by his entreaty and all his sin and his faithfulness and the sites in which he built high places and set up the ashram and the images before he humbled himself, behold, they are written in the chronicles of the seers. So Manasseh slept with his fathers and they buried him in his house and Ammon his son reigned in his place. How did that happen? Do you know how? How could it have happened? How could Manasseh, the worst of the worst of the worst, repent and believe and then even start ruling faithfully and die in honor with I might add, the longest reign of any king of Judah. How? After so many warnings, ignored and ignored and ignored, prophet after prophet, sin upon sin. In the case of Manasseh, it took nothing less than a foretaste of God's judgment ordained by God to show Manasseh the striking reality of his sin and its consequences so that he would repent. He had to see that those warnings were true, that God really was committed to his justice. This is why our chronicler makes clear that it was all God. It was God who brought on the punishment from Assyria. Only after this taste of God's real discipline does Manasseh humble himself and repent. To humble oneself, a term we often find in the history of Israel. 
is for those who repent and trust in God. To humble yourself is to see your sin, to see yourself as you are, to see your standing before God, and to really believe what we have just been describing, to really know that we are enemies deserving God's wrath, and if we are to be saved at all, it will be calling upon God to do what we could never deserve. We would never add humility to, 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 a, to become a work that we accomplish for our salvation, but you will never see repentance and faith without seeing this humility in it. And that is what God works in Manasseh. And then wonder of wonders, God spares Manasseh from his deserved punishment. God is moved. God's heart is extended in love to Manasseh. So that Manasseh, sinner upon sinners, the one who put an idol in God's house and worshiped him there, moves the heart of God. Wicked, horrible Manasseh. That his sorrow could lead to God's compassion. So much so that God brings Manasseh back to Jerusalem. And then Manasseh looks on the salvation that God has totally accomplished despite himself and believes. And then God's salvation works even in Manasseh so that he ends his rule as a faithful king. Now let's ask the question again. Does that seem fair? What has Manasseh done to deserve that grace from God? Manasseh desecrates God's house with idols. God delivers Manasseh. It is clear that Manasseh could produce nothing to show God other than his deserving of punishment. And yet, it is the one who has every right to punish him who sovereignly saves him. God orchestrated that Assyrian invasion to lead Manasseh to repentance. It was God who saved Manasseh so that Manasseh would trust in God alone. Manasseh had done no work. His faithful reign was not evidence that he deserved to be saved. His faithful reign was only possible because God had already saved him, because it was already accomplished. So from beginning to end, Manasseh's repentance, Manasseh's trust in God, then Manasseh's fruit is all a work of what God has done. And Manasseh has nothing to show except a picture of the sovereign grace of a wonderful God whose grace extends to the worst of the worst of sinners. Once we really understand 
the extent of sin. If God works that humility in us, we then see that we have no recourse but to throw ourselves upon the mercy of God. And the great grace of God is this, that he doesn't wait for us to prove that we can do anything for him. He doesn't compare us to other sinners. He is moved in his heart to offer compassion to those who cry out to him. He delights to save the worst of the worst of sinners. And he surely, absolutely, undoubtedly, sovereignly, mightily promises that he will work repentance, faith, even lifelong perseverance in those who are his. Now for some of us, he might work this in us simply by hearing and heeding the warnings and exhortations of his word. For some of us, it may take discipline. As Hebrews says, it is for discipline that you endure. I pray that you will not need to be drawn to repentance in the way that Manasseh was, brought to almost nothing in this world so that you can finally humble yourself before God. But if you are his, he will do it. He will do it, and it will be a gracious work of salvation for your eternal good and life. This shocking repentance and restoration of Manasseh would also have been shocking to our readers in Chronicles. This is one case in which the book of Chronicles does not remove, but actually adds to the previous historical account of Manasseh that we have in the book of Kings. That's likely why we see that the chronicler sources his account of Manasseh's repentance and his works of faithfulness after. He says, this comes from the Chronicles of the Seers, another book which we do not have. We don't know how well known that history of Manasseh's repentance was in the days of the returned exiles. But to them, this shocking return and restoration of Manasseh after his own short exile would clearly have been a sweet reminder to them. Just as they were no less guilty than Manasseh, as we have seen, so too could they marvel at the great grace of God to them, those who had been brought back to Jerusalem from Babylon. So too could they say it was not because of their worthiness, not because they had done a single thing to show that they merited God's favor, but only because of God's good, sovereign grace, calling people to himself to repent and believe who have nothing to show him. Friends, if we can truly see, if we can truly humbly see that we are not different than Manasseh in our hearts, then humble yourself as Manasseh did. Don't be afraid to say that you have nothing to show, nothing to present to God. There is not a single good work or deed that we can find in ourselves which is not touched 
to some degree by our pride or our selfishness or our greed. Our best works, our genuinely good works, the best we can do, are still touched by the pollution of sin. If we have any hope of anything other than an eternity of exile from God in hell, it will be because he does in our lives and our hearts what we could never do. He humbles us. He shows us our sin despite all of our desperation to ignore it. He shows us his justice, his punishment, and then wonder of wonders, he shows us how ready he is with his grace to work repentance and faith in the chief of sinners. So the right question to ask is not how God can punish sin. It is how can God forgive it? When we really see our sin, how just it is for God to punish those who have hated him, like Manasseh did, how can God be moved to forgive? We now have the full answer. The answer which was still being revealed in the time of Manasseh, that hundreds of years later, on a hill called Golgotha, the only man in history whose heart was not stained like Manasseh's by sin, Jesus Christ had the punishment of all of Manasseh's sin put on his shoulders. Manasseh's child sacrifices, his necromancy, sorcery, omens, desecrating the temple of God. Jesus bore that full wrath of God, that the pain of the hooks in Manasseh's nose and the shackles on his feet were just a foretaste of. Jesus took it for Manasseh so that Manasseh's wickedness upon wickedness could be forgotten. Could be forgiven. So that Manasseh could be called a son of God. Jesus rose from the dead. God's proof that he had defeated the curse of sin and death that Manasseh need not spend an eternity exiled from God despite all of his sin. This was God's promise of grace abounding for the chief of sinners, for Manasseh and for you and for me. So yes, Paul does say, and he honestly does say that he is the foremost of sinners. But what else does he say? This saying is trustworthy. You can take it to the bank. It is deserving of full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Friend, if you are struck by your sin, then be all the more struck by the grace of Jesus Christ. Where sin abounded, Sin of Manasseh, your sin, my sin. Grace abounds all the more. So in Manasseh, we see the full extent of sin. We see its consequences. But then, in Manasseh's repentance and restoration, we see the magnitude of God's grace. That's our second point this morning. 
in Manasseh's repentance and restoration, we see the magnitude of God's grace. But even as we marvel at that grace, we return once more to the short account of his son, Ammon. Verses 20 through 25 in Second Chronicles 33. So Manasseh slept with his fathers, and they buried him in his house, and Ammon, his son, reigned in his place. Ammon was 22 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned two years in Jerusalem. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, as Manasseh, his father, had done. Ammon sacrificed to all the images that Manasseh, his father, had made and served them. And he did not humble himself before the Lord, as Manasseh, his father, had humbled himself. But this Ammon incurred guilt more and more, and his servants conspired against him and put him to death in his house. But the people of the land struck down all those who had conspired against King Ammon. And the people of the land made Josiah his son king in his place. There are two things you can take away from that short account of Ammon, the son of Manasseh. The first is that forgiven sin will still have consequences in this world. One day, you and I who have trusted in Jesus Christ will exalt him alongside Manasseh in a world with no grief, no fear, no despair, and no pain. All of the consequences of sin will be utterly banished. But as God patiently waits to bring more sinners to himself, we still live in a world stained by sin and its consequences. Manasseh's forgiven sin still had horrible consequences for God's people. This is one of the reasons that Manasseh's repentance is not recorded in Kings, because ultimately, if we are looking at the broad history, Manasseh's sin still plays a key role in Judah's decline and downfall. We see that his son clearly took an example from the wickedness of his father. He used the idols Manasseh had built to worship them in a way Manasseh had taught him to carry out the sin that Manasseh had been an example of. I am sure that most of us who have placed our trust in Jesus have known the pain of seeing some of those effects, even of our sin, which we know is totally forgiven. And it leads us to say, come Lord Jesus, and to praise him anew for his grace. In Amman, there is one more thing we can see, which is that God does not lead all men to repentance and faith. It would have been totally just for God to let Manasseh die in Babylon in his wickedness and rebellion. And that is what happens to his son. In Ammon, we see all the sins of Manasseh repeated, but now the chronicler says, and he did not humble himself before the Lord as Manasseh, his father, had humbled himself. But this Ammon incurred, incurred guilt more and more. God did not give Ammon the experiences, the gifts he gave Manasseh, he didn't even give Ammon that good, hard discipline. Instead, Ammon is murdered in the height of his sin. And so we see that God is committed to his justice and grace and his perfect plan in the lives of Manasseh's and Ammon's exalts both. Both are magnified as he brings sinners to repentance who trust that their punishment was paid by Jesus and when he leaves other sinners to bear their punishment themselves. Friends, as we delight in the grace of Christ 
for the worst of sinners, we can never presume on the grace of Christ for every sinner. If we do, we do not believe in grace. As soon as you say it was God's obligation to save every Manasseh and Ammon from punishment, you have turned it into wages, into our due, into our deserving. If you can look into your own heart and say, God is obliged to give you the good that you deserve, then you have missed the humility that Manasseh learned in Babylon. And it would be right to pray that God would humble you no matter what it took. God would be just to leave you in your sin like you did, he did with Ammon to leave you to the glorious display of his justice, which is coming to all those who have desecrated the temple of their hearts like Manasseh and have not repented. Manasseh, sinner of sinner upon sinner, is now with God in paradise. And so many Pharisees, men of great morality, who despised hearing they were anything like Manasseh, died in their sins. Manasseh saw his sin and repented, and they refused to. Friend, if you see your sin, you need not delay for a moment. Today is the day, and this hour is the hour. Don't try and clean up your act. Don't try and help yourself so that God will help you. The worst sinner in the pit of despair moves the heart of our God so that he is pleased to glorify his son by saving you, totally despite yourself. Take the experience of Manasseh as a guarantee. Take it to the bank. It does not matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter how many times you have failed to prove yourself to God, failed to pick yourself up, failed to dust yourself off and earn anything before him. Friend, only call out to God. Call out to Jesus as Manasseh called out in his despair. If your trust is in Jesus, then as regards you being justified before God, he's not even looking at you. His eyes are only ever always on Jesus. He accepts Jesus' righteousness totally on your behalf so that you and I and Manasseh don't need to compare our hearts we don't have to compare our works. We don't have to compare our affections to decide who's going to get the joy of God for eternity. We don't have to wonder whether we were good enough yesterday. We don't have to wonder whether we'll be good enough tomorrow. All of us, thank God, get treated only as Christ deserves. We are justified in him because he surely absolutely took our place on the cross we will surely absolutely share his place in glory. And like Manasseh, we can, he can even work in us by his spirit, conforming us to the image of our savior so that we even do get to enjoy some of that righteous work that never earns our place before him but grows as fruit of his amazing work in us. This is what he does for the worst of sinners. So friend, never for a moment fall back into pride. There is no need 
for the anxiety of starting to look at yourself and asking whether you're good enough or will be good enough. Praise God for his work in Manasseh, his never-failing, never-ending grace and his work in us. Now today, as a church, we gather around the communion table to celebrate that unceasing grace. This regular, repeated sharing in the bread and the cup is a reminder that that grace has not waned, that the grace of Jesus will never wane. The death and resurrection of Jesus 2,000 years ago is just as effective as ever for the forgiveness of sins for all those who call out to him. The removal of their sinful record, the total imputation of his perfect record, the promise of everlasting life as members of God's family to all who trust in him. Our sins, just like Manasseh's, were surely borne by Christ. All of our worst God-hating treachery was placed on his shoulders so that we could come to this table, say his death is for me, and delight to know that he bore what we deserved there. And God surely gives us what he deserves. Even now, enjoying some of what Christ deserves by gathering around God's table as his family, calling him Father and delighting together in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for us. We all would have known a history of justice where sinners rebel against you and bear the penalty for their sin. We thank you that the history that we know is true is the one where a just God freely offers grace, where he is moved by the entreaty even of the worst of sinners that he would bring us to repentance and faith. And now as we gather around the table, may your spirit work faith and delight in Jesus Christ, a renewed remembrance of our sin, not that we would be enslaved to fear, but that we would be enamored anew with grace and all that you work, even in the worst of sinners. We praise you. We praise your son, Jesus Christ, for this, in whose name we pray, amen.